You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, uh, preaching this uh, Sunday after Easter is the, the task of making the move from the cast of thousands to the faithful remnant. And in in many ways, it begs the question of today's sermon title, Now What? Um, But the resurrection begs the same question. Because I think for us, often in our celebrations of Easter, the, the celebration of Christ's resurrection is done with... Handel's Hallelujah Chorus and Christ the Lord is Risen Today accompanied by brass. But for the women at the tomb on that first resurrection day, it was an eerie, quiet silence of the empty tomb that accompanied their experience. Because what the resurrection does is change everything. It changes everything, and initially, therefore, it is a bit confusing. And I think that's what's captured in Mark's gospel in these first eight verses of of chapter 16. If you open your Bibles to that passage, one of the things that you will see is that in the New Revised Standard Version, you've got um, the shorter ending of Mark, the longer ending of Mark, um, and then you have this wonderful footnote that describes why those things are there. And let me just tell you that the oldest manuscript evidence seems to point to the fact that Mark's gospel probably did end um, initially at verse 8, verse eight uh, but that in subsequent um, renderings of, of the text, uh, the copyists and, and those transmitting it decided to add a little bit because it ends kind of on an open invitation. It doesn't really end with resolution. It ends with fear. And so let's look at that uh, now. Um, Mark 16, uh, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they may go, they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Yet when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move us beyond the limits of our own imaginations. Pull us deep into the mystery of the truth of the resurrection. And by your Spirit, enable us to take up even just a hint of that glory that we might reflect it in our world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It occurs to me that a big part of the story of any of our lives is the story that can be written in terms of what happens when we find ourselves suddenly uprooted from one place and placed down in another. Picked up from one place and set down in another, and it's a a move that forces a a kind of adjustment in our expectations, a move that, that invites us and really in many ways demands us to change our way, to think about life differently because we're living in a new place with new kinds of experiences and, and new expectations. Over 17 years ago, my family and I were plucked up from Southern California and replanted in Seattle. And, uh, and we began uh, to live here in 1995. And as I've been out in my yard over the last couple of weekends enjoying that rare reality of sunshine um, and working in the yard, I've been thinking about how my expectations with respect to gardening and yard work have changed since our move up here 17 years ago. It's been a slow but sure accommodation to the truth that I had been plucked up from the land where the sun shines and it rarely rains and put down in the land where ultimately fir trees and moss will have the last word. (laughs) And I'm especially aware of this in terms of a Southern California gardening institution and concept that may not be as familiar to you up here, but it's a concept known as the front lawn. (laughs) In my case, it's the back lawn, um, but it's a lawn nevertheless. And, you know, we just kind of never had one. You know, what with dogs and, and kids and trees, we just didn't worry about it. But as the kids got older and, and uh, uh, actually the dog passed away, <laughs> we, uh, uh, we didn't have that same kind of st- stress. And I, my daughter came to me one day and she said, you know, it would be so good. I think she was in elementary school at the time. She said, it would be so good if we could just, if I could just go out in the backyard and every once in a while just lay down on green grass and look up at the sky. Well, now what father couldn't respond to that? <laughs> And so I started the work of, of uh, trying to create a lawn. And um, I, I noticed that people who had been somewhat successful with that, they, they made sure there was a big enough perimeter around their fir trees and didn't try to plant uh, in certain places. And so I ordered about 15 tons of um, what are called half-man rock. I don't know why they call them half-man. Um, 
They felt like more than a full man to me as we uh, lifted them. But it, it happened that the rock arrived right around the same time as the university ministry's work days. Uh, and so myself and my son and uh, two uh, very burly uh, uh, university ministry students uh, came and we moved that 15 ton of rock up the, I live on a hill, and we moved it up the driveway and into the backyard so that I could create these planters. And once I got the planters created and the outline and, you know, the whole thing was just very feng shui. I, it was... Uh, <laughs> arcs and is beautiful and, and it's still there. The rock's still there at least. And uh, um, I, I gave my story away. But uh, they, the reality of making this lawn was really kind of fun. I got the rototiller, you know, the, the big Mondo size that Aurora Rents offered, you know, that took me uh, through the yard, um, almost like being pulled by a horse in a plowing situation. And, and I put in a sprinkler system, and I sowed the seed and, and covered it with mulch, and, you know, voila, we had a, uh, we had a lawn um, for a while. <laughs> but what I know today, and it, it was not an easy awareness to come to, but what I know today is that the clumps of moss on my roof and the fir trees were secretly snickering as they watched me do all of this, plotting together about how they were going to undo all of my work. When we're ushered into a, a brand new place, we have to adjust our expectations. We have to adjust our expectations about life because it means that we're going to be dispossessed of, of certain assumptions the assumption that I needed to be dispossessed of was the assumption that I could actually create a lawn. I, I couldn't. And when this happens, we have to begin to operate out of new assumptions because we've been plucked up and planted in a brand new place, and it necessitates this. Now, I've used the humble, humbler, uh, humorous, uh, rather, experience of gardening but the real work of doing this hits us in places of far greater significance than that. And we all know about those places when life happens and we suddenly have to move to a new place. When we, as Jesus says to Peter in John 21, the day will come when, although when you were young you could go wherever you wanted to go freely, the day will come when uh, you are bound and taken where you do not want to go. Well, that happens for all of us and not just because of age. We are delivered into some of these new spaces, plucked up from certain places that seem familiar to us and planted in new places when things like death happen, when relationships end and divorces happen, when health is challenged by disease. All of those things pick us up from one place that we had grown used to and suddenly plant us in another place. And it's a confusing time because it calls on us to rethink our reality. It calls on us to regroup because what it presents us with is the question simply, now what? 
Well, I think Mark captures for us how the resurrection of Jesus was one of those moments for the disciples, for especially these women that he writes about who had come to the tomb. What happened when they beheld that empty tomb was that they were suddenly picked up out of one reality and placed down in another one, and they had to ask that question, now what? The initial experience of the resurrection was not an experience of celebration, but it was an experience of fear and confusion because it unhinged things. It challenged expectations. It meant having to deal with a radically altered place of brand new expectations. And that's true in all of the gospel accounts, with exception of maybe Matthew. But if you read Luke's gospel, you have that wonderful story of the, the two disciples who are on, their ro- on the road to Emmaus, on their way out of Jerusalem. They have heard the word that Jesus has, the Jesus' tomb is empty, that, that there are reports that he has been raised, uh, and they're, they're walking out of town because they can't make sense of any of it. They say to themselves and to this stranger who happens to be accompanying them at the, the moment, We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. But now those expectations aren't there. And so they were just getting out of town and they are being accompanied, little do they know it, by the resurrected Christ. And it's at the moment of the breaking of the bread that they suddenly understand that it's Jesus and yet in a new way, in a different way, because the moment he breaks the bread, he disappears out of their sight. Or there's the story of Mary Magdalene at the, at the tomb, where she, along with the other women, are, are given the word that, that we have in Mark's gospel, and, and yet we have the story there of, of Mary uh, just distraught over the absence of Jesus' body, that she was not going to be able to do what she had come there to do. And she also is encountered by one that she does not know. And she says to him, sir, if she thinks he's the gardener, and she says, sir, if you've taken his body, please tell me and that I may go and, and bring him back. And then her eyes are opened. And at what point are they opened? They're opened when this man she assumes to be the gardener says his, her name. And she suddenly sees that it is Jesus, but it is a Jesus that is very different than the Jesus that she had encountered before the resurrection, because he says to her, as she reaches for him, she, he says to her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's a brand new set of expectations. And death of Jesus and the absence of his body is a, an initially jarring event. What didn't happen at the empty tomb was someone there to accompany it with something as as potent and and magnificent as, as Handel's Alleluia Chorus. There was only the eerie silence of an empty tomb and the wonder of what that might mean. And so in Mark 16, what we have is the repetition of these these words, this sense of fear not. If you look at, at Mark 16, there's the word alarmed, of terror and amazement, of, of the word afraid. 
the repetition of these these words that that really run all the way through Mark's gospel. Because if you you read Mark, just go through it sometime and and make a little check mark every time you see a word having to do with fear and to whom that word is applied. And usually it'll be applied to the disciples because what they do is stumble along behind Jesus, amazed and afraid, not quite getting what he's about. And the other word that you'll see in Mark's gospel over and over and over again is the word immediately. It's like this wonderful transition. And it's the image of this fast son of God on the move through that story and immediately going to the next place. But the disciples are always a few steps behind trying to figure out why they are, where they are. And so in some ways the The experience at the empty tomb is no different than the rest of this gospel. They once again have to deal with what it means to be attached to, to be following, to be in relationship with Jesus. And here at the empty tomb, what they know is that he's gone. He's not here. And the result of that is that they feel plucked up and planted in a new place And so they need to readjust their expectations, these women do, and chart a new course. You know, it's kind of like when you're driving and the GPS system is saying, turn right onto Maple Street. And then you miss Maple Street. And this wonderful voice says to you in such a gentle way, recalculating, There's the need to recalculate in that moment where we're suddenly ushered into that new place where things don't make sense. And so there are challenges before us as disciples as we try and figure out what does it mean to follow the risen Christ? What does it mean to embrace the resurrection? What does it mean to be delivered into this brand new place? And I think there's, there's two challenges issued in this text. Two invitations that are in some ways issued by this angel in this interaction with these women. And the challenges that are issued are the challenge to move, first of all, from certainty to faithfulness. And then the challenge to move from amazement to involvement. From certainty to faithfulness and from amazement to involvement. Those are the challenges that are issued to us as disciples as we live into the reality of the resurrection. And so first of all, the move from certainty to faithfulness. What does that look like for a disciple to to make that move, to adjust expectations in light of the new place that we find ourselves under the resurrection of Jesus? Well, one of the things that I see about the women as they are on their way to the tomb is that they are quite certain about what their mission is. They are quite clear on what they need to do. They do the thing that women always do in that culture. They have obeyed the Sabbath, and the Sabbath celebration was going on on the death of Jesus, and so they were not able to anoint his body then. And so after the Sabbath has been complete, as the sun is rising on the the new day following the Sabbath, they go to the tomb to anoint him. Their task is clear and they're certain about their task. Their task is to go and anoint a corpse. 
The other thing that they're certain about is that they're probably going to have a problem when they get there. They discuss it with themselves along the way. Who's going to roll away the stone? We're not big enough to do that, so what's that going to look like? Who's going to do that? And they realize, once they get there, that no one needs to roll away the stone, that that problem didn't need to be solved. So you see, nothing that they were certain about, nothing that they were certain about doing actually needed to be done once they arrived. And so they were standing there with their spices and fragrances, just wondering what their job was. And then the angel speaks. And that's where the challenge of faithfulness comes in. That's where the invitation to move from certainty to faithfulness happens because what happens at that moment is that they don't, they find their answer to that question, now what? For the angel says to them, fear not. Trust. He's not here. He has been raised. He has gone ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. It's the challenge of living into the promise. The challenge of moving to faithfulness is the challenge of living into the promise. It's the same challenge before every disciple of Jesus in every age, and that is living with the expectation that he's alive that he's going ahead of us, that we will see him, that there's an adventure to be lived and that that adventure might be very messy and uncertain and out of control at certain points, that life will not be certain and neat again. The challenge of faithfulness is the challenge, much like that challenge that I remember Bruce Larson giving me once when I was talking about being a pastor and trying to understand it, and he says, oh, don't, don't try and understand it. Just hold on and enjoy the mess. <laughs> it's the move from certainty to faithfulness that the, cha- the angel invites. But the angel also invites the move from amazement to involvement or from alarm to action. There's all sorts of amazement and and alarm going on around the empty tomb. There's this shock of being dispossessed of expectations and alarmed by that. These women don't have the job that they thought they were going to have, and the sight of the empty tomb unhinges them. Things are not at all as they thought they would be, and so there is a kind of paralysis that, that overcomes us in the moments of these tectonic shifts in our lives. What's it going to mean now? to relate to this Jesus. There's a kind of awe that maybe we also feel in these moments, just like in these moments of holiness where, like Peter in the Mount of Transfiguration story, when he and and Jesus and James and John encounter the the glorified forms of of Elijah and Moses and, and Christ himself is glorified and there's just all of this glory going on and, and Peter says, wow, this is cool, let's stay here. Let's build some tents and have kind of a love-in and uh, just, just enjoy this, Jesus. Let's live in this awe forever, but they don't because we don't live in the awe forever. Every Sunday isn't Easter Sunday. 
Every worship service isn't the, the, the mighty sound of trumpets. It's not really where we live our lives. We live our lives staring into the empty tomb and wondering, Jesus, where are you and what are you doing? And let me be a part of it. So the angel says really the same thing to these women that that Jesus says to Peter, no, you can't stay here. Go. Go. Go tell the disciples. Go. Go. Go on to Galilee because... He's going to meet you there just as he told you that he would. Go continue the journey. Take up the pilgrimage along Jesus' way, but go expecting to encounter him because he told you you would. And you can trust that. So you see the the invitation that's present at the beginning of Mark's gospel is the same invitation that's, that's issued at the end of Mark's gospel. It's the invitation to follow. It's like Mark's gospel is this wonderful continuous loop of a, of a film where we, we hear Jesus inviting the disciples to follow. We see the disciples stumbling along behind him and we get to the end and it's almost as if the angel says, you know what, guys, go back to the beginning of the book and read this thing again because you might get it that time. What's being issued here is the challenge to continue the journey. To move from amazement to involvement is the challenge to continue the journey. It's the challenge to take up what the writer of Hebrews says when he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside the weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God in glory. Expect to see him. Expect to be included in his mission. He hasn't simply gone to heaven and is waiting for you to arrive there, but he is about the business of establishing his kingdom right now. Several years ago, uh, in the the late 90s, I had the opportunity to go and visit some of our seminarians who were currently at Princeton Seminary and also to take a continuing education class by Don Jewell, uh, a New Testament studies professor who was there at the time. And as I sat in that class on the Gospel of Mark, Don Jewell told this story of... um, of being involved in teaching Mark's gospel to a group of high schoolers. And, and we were at that point in the class looking at chapters 15 and 16, and Dr. Jewell was talking about how in Mark's gospel there is this, this marvelous metaphor of doors, doors that are open and doors that are shut. And in 15 and 16, we've got two doors. In 15, upon the death of Jesus, one of the things that happens is it says that the temple curtain was torn in two, revealing the Holy of Holies within the temple. And in chapter 16, we see that this, this stone that, that marked the death of Jesus is rolled away and, and becomes another one of those open doors. And as, as Joel talked about uh, teaching this passage to a group of high school students, he said, you know, what, is, what do you suppose this means? What, is, what are these open doors about? 
And the discussion went to the expected place that we would think it would go to, and that, well, the, the temple curtain being torn means that we now have access to God, that, that, that we have the ability to engage God and to encounter God and to pray to God. And, and the same with the, uh, the open tomb, is that these women are not shut out, but, but allowed to, to, to relate to Jesus. And as he, as he tells the story, he says that there was a one high school boy sitting uh, over to his left and uh, who was getting this smile on his face. And, and it, he, he spoke up at one point and he said, you know, it doesn't just mean that. He says, you know, what's really cool is that what it means is that Jesus is on the loose. That it's not so much about us getting to God as it is that God has finally gotten to us. In a potent way. Jesus is on the loose. The resurrection changes everything. Because if Jesus is on the loose, Jesus is Lord, and that's our confession. He isn't some object in our world that we can control or use like some sort of personal trainer or life coach to help us live our plans for our life. He's the Lord of creation. He's the one in whom all things hold together. He's Lord. He isn't some object in our world. He isn't a body that these women can anoint. He isn't an amulet that we wear around our neck. He's the Lord of creation. He's the living Lord at work every day and everywhere, issuing the same invitation that he issued to those initial disciples when he invited them to follow him into that work. It's what St. Paul says when he celebrates in Romans 14, 7. We do not live to ourselves. We do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He's Lord. He's making himself known. And the challenge to us in this post-resurrection reality in which we live is to look for him. And if we do, if we do, we will find him just as he told us we would. Let's pray. Open our eyes by your Spirit, O God, and teach us again the truth that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to you. And then equip us to take even a hint of that glory and reflect it to our world. And so we pray now as we receive tithes and offerings, as we give witness to the truth that all that we have is yours, that you would confirm us in that truth and send us from this place to proclaim our belonging and to proclaim your lordship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette.
To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.